Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Marketers and advertisers, brands big and small. You've been after a special someone for a while now. You think they're into you. I mean, you share the same interests, both passionate about the same stuff. Why wouldn't they be? Wait. There's a moment of silence. It's finally just you two alone. They're waiting. Go on, shoot your shot. You've got a voice. Use it now. Hearts are racing. Breathing becomes heavier. This is your chance to win them over. So what are you going to say? Get closer to your audience. Make podcast ads with Acast. Head to go.acast.com slash closer to get started. Hello, this is producer Matt, and thanks for downloading the second of six media podcasts that we're recording to promote our Kickstarter campaign to secure the show long term. And I'm delighted to say that the campaign is now live. So if you want your regular fix of the media podcast to continue, go to our website, themediapodcast.com, and click on the link to Kickstarter. For those that don't know, Kickstarter is the name of a crowdfunding site. The way it works is that we set a target that needs to be raised. People like yourselves pledge money. And if we make that target, then the show continues. If we don't, the money never leaves your account and we end the podcast and say nothing about it again. All the details are on the website, themediapodcast.com. Pledge now and save this podcast. Okay. And now, this week's show. Hello, I'm Ollie Mann, and on today's show, it's all about the renegades as Robert Peston slams BBC News for following a newspaper agenda and US commentator Michael Wolfe lays into his old employers at The Guardian. Plus, Channel 4 aims to steal a march on ITV's Rising Star with its own talent show where viewers vote via an app. And as the World Cup kicks off, Sky announces a new football channel. Are they now seeing BT Sport? as a threat. This is the Media Podcast from themediapodcast.com. And with us today in the studio are media writer Maggie Brown and the TV editor of Heat Magazine, Boyd Hilton. Welcome to you both. Thanks. Hello, thank you. Sometimes the chats off air are even more nourishing than the ones on air. Uh, first of all, Maggie, you just name-dropped Hugh Grant. You just met Hugh Grant. What was yes, that about? I did. Well, I was at the Robert Peston speech at the British Journalism Reviews, and uh, part of the way through Peston's speech, the door opened, and um, in came the rather elegant figure of uh, Hugh Grant. I think he came along because he said to me, actually, that when, I, when he started off on this hacked-off thing, he thought it would be, and Leveson, he thought it would be three weeks. He said it's three years and counting and still going strong. Uh, there's been quite, uh, you might say, a lot of tension within the British Journalism Review because Steve Barnett is one of the members and he is absolutely 100% in favour of a Royal Charter to regulate the press. Hugh Grant, with Hacked Off, is, of course, on that side very much too. 
And, of course, the British Journalism Review, in its editorial and in its stance, is completely opposed to Hackdorff. I think that explained why there was this sort of very interesting drinks party where the star of the show was actually standing there with a professor and not with a huge bunch of people around him asking for autographs. Yeah, interesting how he's made himself untouchable amongst certain uh, newspaper <laughs> journalists, isn't it? Did you accidentally on purpose bump into him with your coffee and then fall in love? That's what we really want to know. Uh, uh, and then Boyd, uh, yes. you've, just, you've just told us, as if this couldn't get any more showbiz, that you are en route after this to go and be live yeah. on The One Show. Yeah, got it, got it, got, yeah, going straight to The One Show, walking there from this glamorous studio. I think we could studio? call it a studio. Yeah. Um, I like Shaq. Shaq. Shaq, it is a Shaq, yeah, you're right. To be on with Maureen Lippman. Maureen Lippman is the main guest. Obviously, I'm not the main guest. That would be a hideous come down in the uh, One Show's celebrity booking situation. But um, they're doing a feature, they're doing an item, which I think this is genuinely a good idea on their, their behalf. I do think the One Show, by the way, is absolutely brilliant show. They're doing an item on explaining things like Blinkbox and um, Netflix and all of those downloading TV things streaming devices and all of that to their viewers to old people to old people and you're going to be their guys and i'm going to be helping out so they've put they've done a thing a feature on it where they get people to test them all out and compare them Mm -hmm. and then i'm on to talk about what is it the future of tv and all that but i think that's really good point because i think actually normal people not just old people normal people are baffled right well on with the show and first up robert peston as maggie alluded to delivering the charles wheeler lecture last week causing no end of fuss when he said that the most frustrating thing was the way bbc news was quote completely obsessed by the agenda set by newspapers and uh, maggie it may be frustrating but is it particularly massive surprise that bbc news radio tv does follow a newspaper agenda to some extent well to some extent you're asking me did we almost miss a story the, the thing is that this arose not in the speech which was basically whacking pr and the pr industry over the head this was in the question and answer afterwards and what he was actually talking about was the frustration of being a journalist chasing original stories and having to get them through these layers of editors at the BBC. And I think that the quote that he gave was preceded by this and how a lot of his activity as a journalist was actually battling, fighting to get stories that matter in his opinion as first a business correspondent, now economics editor of the uh, BBC, onto air when people listening to him will say that's not a story. So that preceded uh, this, what you might call uh, almost a rant, really, about the news values or the news agenda of parts of the BBC. Afterwards, of course, I was actually talking about this with Hugh Grant, and uh, I said, (laughs) you know, that one of the interesting things, well, I've been a journalist for 40 years, and I started on the Birmingham Post and Mail, and my experience from that moment onwards was that, especially then when the regional press was so strong, that you used to have to monitor the BBC regional news to see if they ever got any stories. They never did, but they always followed up your stories. Um, This was on regional television and on on radio. And so I said, well, actually, in 40 years, I don't think anything has really changed, except, of course, the regional press has got much less powerful. And as I was standing there, I realised that actually a little light went on in my head and I thought, no, this really is a story. So uh, although the speech was released, this wasn't. And I seem to have been the only working journalist there to actually pick it up and write it for the Media Guardian. And regarding the Mail and the Telegraph specifically that you mentioned there, uh, I mean, a lot of people are quite surprised by that because a lot of people think the BBC is actually more led by the likes of The Guardian and The Independent than The Mail and The Telegraph. 
But if you actually look at the papers that are the most likely to give the BBC a bashing, it is probably the Mail and the Telegraph, isn't it? Boyd, is this a surprise that uh, someone very senior within BBC News seems to be saying they're enthralled to the right-wing press? No, I think it's absolutely true, because it's got to the point where the BBC is scared of the coverage that they get in the Mail and the Telegraph and the Sun um, as well, kind of to a slightly lesser extent. So they've adopted this defensive position about it as an organisation, and so every time, you know, post-Savile, I mean, but even going back before that into, into Andrew Gilligan and all, you know, every, you know, every time they do something, they, they do make a mistake and they do have a massive cock-up or whatever happens, they can get incredibly defensive about the response to it in the papers. So I think it's all part of that. And I, I get the sense that on big subjects like immigration, um, the economy even, and, um, you know, a lot of kind of social issues in a sense as well, that the agenda is set by the, by the, by the popular press or by the right-wing press. To the, I don't think the BBC is biased in any way. I, mean, I genuinely think either way. You know, I genuinely think, you know, it's trying its very best to be objective as, as, as it can be. But I do think they commission sh- certain types of show and certain types of documentary and they, uh, they'll have certain items on news night and so, all of this stuff clearly in reaction to the way that those items are covered in the papers. It's that kind of thing that I think Robert Preston was talking about, and I think he's clearly right. Yeah, and he talked as well about the fears of journalism from PR companies as well, not just uh, churning what you see in the tabloid papers. I mean, Boyd, he memorably talked in this uh, lecture about uh, at the Sunday Telegraph there being a waste paper basket by the fax machine 10 years ago, and it was called the round filing cabinet. PR statements would come in, they'd go straight Mm -hmm. in the round filing cabinet. What's your attitude to PR people at Heat? Well, it's a different world, isn't it? Because I'm in showbiz uh, journalism, TV criticism, and, you know, I interview celebrities and I write about it. It's such a different world. We are entirely reliant on, on PR and, and you know, public relations as an industry, and that we make no bones about it. I mean, the whole, the whole world of showbiz journalism is. And I don't think it's I, – I don't – you know, people would assume it's a terrible thing and it's a disgrace, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, if you, if you prove on a weekly basis that you maintain your independence of – you know, all kinds of public relations, gi- relations giants, whether it's Simon Cowell's team, you know, at Psycho, or whether it's Channel 4 or BBC. BBC has an enormous PR machine, let's not forget, who are very, very defensive about everything that happens at the BBC. I mean, you know, you speak to certain um, tabloid showbiz journalists, they get furious about the way the BBC tries to pretend that stuff isn't happening, <laughs> you know, when it clearly is. We are relying on PR and showbiz journalists because, you know, they are the gatekeepers to the people you want access to. And yet, but but let me finish, and yet, you know, you wouldn't give copy approval, you know, to them. You wouldn't wouldn't say we're not going to give this album a bad review to get an interview with Cheryl Cole. We don't do any of that. You know, we're very clear about that. So I think it's up to you to maintain a level of dignity, if you like, as a showbiz journalist, despite the fact you are absolutely reliant on them to get access to TV shows, to, to the stars, to whatever. But even within showbiz journalism, I mean, this is the Lynn Barber complaint, isn't it? This is the Michael Parkinson complaint. That is relatively new. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there wasn't so much PR. I mean, Maggie, you've been around for a while. Have you seen this change happen? That's precisely Peston's point, that that a lot has changed in the world that he operates in, which, OK, has been pretty much a broadsheet newspaper industry until he came to the BBC. And his point also is that the PR industry vastly outweighs the number of active journalists in, 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 in the normal 
exchanges of, of you know, business. So he was also extremely concerned about what he calls native advertising. What he means really is the blurring of editorial and um, advertising lines. And you can see it on television too with product placement and advertising-funded programming. And the same thing creeping in, he feels, I think, to areas which had previously been pretty clean. So it was altogether a, a rather magnificent speech, actually. And I, I recommend anybody to, to look it up and read it because uh, it's certainly got the juices going. When it comes to that kind of advertorial, though, I was wondering, I understand his concerns if you apply it to the Telegraph or the Independent. But if you think about something like BuzzFeed, if you consider that a news source, which is what they claim to be, uh, then actually it's the uh, audience online who are operating the articles that they find interesting. If they find them interesting and it's advertorial, is that a problem if the audience like it? I, d- I don't think it's a massive problem in that particular case. I think with all these things, you know, you have to... I think it's a, it's a problem if something is being paid for on television and the show is completely driven by that one product or something you know say a food show or something and it's not transparent i think or in a magazine i mean there are very strict rules in newspapers and magazines about advertorials you know and that and that's great you have to make it quite clear if something is paid for by some kind of advertiser but that i think on a, on a website like buzzfeed it doesn't bother me i mean you know Okay, next in our rogues gallery, Michael Wolfe, the former media columnist for The Guardian, wrote a warts and all essay about his former employer for this month's GQ magazine. Writing about the editor of The Guardian, Alan Rusbridger, he says a kind of preternatural consensus surrounds Rusbridger, but underneath him, The Guardian is a fraught political cauldron with underlings struggling to align with him, stay in his favour and undercut everyone else who is trying a nest of vipers in the description of an outside consultant. Uh, Boyd, that's every newspaper, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Every publication, um, <laughs> I think. Oh, no, we're, we're all very happy at Heat. Um, certainly newspapers, yeah, they are, they are uh, nests of vipers, to use that cliche. I, I, I read that um, Michael Wolf article, absolutely brilliantly gripping, fascinating um, entertaining. And in fact, Piers Morgan had a description because he then wrote another piece more recently about um, CNN and how all the CNN presenters are boring, useless idiots. And Piers Morgan was, was, was a preposterous fool who was a complete tragic failure. And Piers Morgan reposted on Twitter and called him some kind of like little, hideous little oik or something, whatever the phrase was. I meant to write it down, I forgot. But I thought, oh yeah, oh, I agree with Piers Morgan about Michael Wolfe um, because he is a really irritating little man. Um, you only know it's little because you've seen photos of him. Um, but I have to say, I com- find his articles invariably utterly gripping and entertaining. And I think it's brilliant that he wrote this thing about The Guardian, clearly having recently been been got rid of. I don't know the details of that, Maggie, Ma- as, as The Guardian uh, I contributor. Bit, I feel you've been, been a bit sizist here because I think... <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm tiny myself. Foot, no, 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 I'm, I'm smaller probably, than you. Uh, Michael's probably taller well, than I am. Fascinating though the relative heights of editors yeah. are. Maggie, do you recognise The Guardian that Michael Wolfe is describing? Uh, only partly. I think that um, he's a man who is clearly uh, striking because uh, he's been wounded. Um, he did, I think, have a very um, enjoyable and, I suspect, rather lucrative extra job, really, uh, with The Guardian writing about the media. He does do this in a very fascinating uh, manner, and it's certainly very readable. I thought that there were quite a few basic big flaws in, in his piece. First of all, he says that, you know, the Guardian's experimental foray into uh, America hasn't worked. Well, it's only three years into a five-year program. He said that the team out there, led by Janine Gibson, who he um, describes in a rather sort of unflattering uh, manner, somebody always looking for the next cigarette in, in, in Manhattan where they don't smoke anymore. Um, he, 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 he was saying that because they were coming back, the A-team were coming back to London, 
the mothership, uh, it, it's a sign that it's failed. Well, hang on a minute. If you're if you're in the, the diplomatic service, if you're if you're in the army, people always change their generals. They change their top people. It's perfectly reasonable. And hey, they're sending in a deputy editor of, of the Guardian to to run the the New York and American office. So it doesn't sound to me as if that bid is correct. He also said that um, okay, Alan has this sort of aura. Well, I thought actually there was a bit of a sort of what you might call culture problem going on here because Brits are Brits, aren't we? We don't go around um, emoting in the way that um, perhaps some Americans do, although I know Obama is a very hard-to-read person. And <laughs> just a sample American. Uh, just a, but, but there was this sort of aspect uh, to it that, that somehow uh, The Guardian is a very strange operation, whereas, in fact, I have known three editors of The Guardian, and I've worked alongside Alan. Yes, he is a man of kind of quite sparse words, uh, but a vision. Uh, you could say the same for Alistair Hetherington, and you could say the same for Peter Press. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. They, they were not people who emoted. So you come to the central issue, which is really whether The Guardian is in absolute trouble because it's changed its financial model. It no longer has the other media companies it can rely on to subsidise it. It has become something of a wealth management uh, centre where it's sold its last big asset and it is hoping to subsidise the losses as it evolves from its investments. And the jury, again, is out on that, as it is with also whether its digital income is growing fast enough to uh, ensure that the, the, the losses are kept under control. Now, the next uh, uh, results, will, I think, come out ne- in July. So it will be very interesting to see what the actual mm. position is. I want Michael Wolf to write a whole book about The Guardian. <laughs> I think he should, if I was him, because it needs to be the Guardian is so interesting. Not I'd like, just him, I'd like him to write all of GQ every month. I'd oh, like to read his thoughts on shoes that. and trousers as well. There were a couple of specific things. That he, I mean, he did mention the idea that um, the Guardian as a whole policed all of its contributors to make sure they supported, um, you know, its recent 
big big investment, if you like, in in the um, in Snowden. In Snowden, yeah, yeah. I was going. I was trying to find the right word to describe in Snowden himself. Yeah, yeah. exactly. He Him says the Guardian US is in the Snowden business. Right. Is what he said. Now you know, I don't know the truth. That's a fascinating. That was a fascinating revelation, if if it's true, because you kind of expect the Guardian not to behave like that. I don't know, but no reason why it shouldn't necessarily. But on on, on a bigger bigger issue, really, I think it's very rare for the Guardian to get this kind of analysis. You know, you get it all the time with the Murdoch papers. You get it quite a lot with the you get other journalists writing about those big power hitters in the, and of course the BBC in the, but the Guardian and yet you know the Guardian I love the Guardian I absolutely love it of course it's my day but boys. I do <laughs> I love it I, you know every now and then they even they might pay me to do something in the, more in the Observer I, everything about it is, it's, I, you know, I'm a left wing liberal media um, and you love the one show who also pay you to do uh, yeah, things a member you're of very the generous Metropolitan Media <laughs> League I'm the perfect Guardian Guardianista but has done a lot of things that are extraordinary. I mean, the, really, we're now in the, this place where, where you know, paywall, the word is considered a bad thing, and all these newspapers are facing the end of the printed, the printed word because the Guardian decided at some point years ago that they were going to give everything they do to everyone for free. And, well, so did and the they, BBC as well, no. remember? No, but the Guardian did that, and that we're all living with the ramifications of that. And then it's created this whole American thing. The New York office is fascinating. And I know for a fact plenty of Guardian journalists were absolutely furious with the whole thing. I mean, you know, absolutely incredulous. But they, they do make extraordinary decisions, you know, in that way. And very rarely do, do, do people pay much attention to them, or do you very rarely do you get that analysis of them. They, they also made an interesting point about Janine Gibson's early campaign against capital punishment, and you could link that to Piers Morgan's oh, yeah. problems with at CNN when he came out very heavily against gun control, which is a non... We may think it's just obvious. Yeah. It isn't obvious to Americans, unfortunately. So there was this sort of sense of dissonance. But as I see it, the Guardian's role in America isn't to be American. It is to be a British liberal voice, a sensibility. That's what they're attempting to do. And I think it's actually quite a worthy exercise. I just don't know financially if, it, if it's going to work. Well, we've dug up the quote on Twitter from Piers Morgan, directed at Michael Wolfe personally. You're a world-class little turd, Michael Wolfe, but I can't help liking you in a sweaty, uncomfortable way. Uh, well, thank you to Michael Hall for suggesting that story on Twitter. Uh, you can do the same by following us at The Media Podcast. Let's cover some other stories now. Channel 4 has commissioned a new talent show where viewers can vote, sounds familiar so far, in real time, oh, new, using a smartphone app. Well, there you are, that's 21st century. Uh, if that sounds familiar in itself, that's probably because ITV has already snapped up a show called Rising Star from Israeli television where viewers can vote in real time using a smartphone app. Uh, according to Broadcast Magazine, four episodes are going to be aired this August. That's five months before ITV's show is set to launch. Uh, Boyd, Channel 4 are calling this The Singer Takes It All. Uh, it's Channel 4 who are trying to take it all, isn't it? They're trying to steal a march on ITV. Yeah, although I, I, there's two things about this story. A, Channel 4 does need um, some new entertainment formats because it's doing really well with drama. It's doing very well with factual. Um, you know, but it's been years since they had a decent, you know, non-chat show entertainment. In fact, I can't even remember the last one. So it just needs to to have one. This sounds, you know, like a decent stab at it, but it does sound quite ITV. But you know, if it, um, Alan Carr it will make it funny. The interesting thing is the voting by app. Now, 
Big Brother started this last week. Mm. So on launch night of Big Brother, the way for you to select who, which of the housemates was going to be in charge was to do only via the app that you had to download. The amazing thing about it, I was watching this live, this is my job, they didn't even tell you what the app was called. You, I, I, I spent about an hour trying to find the bloody app, and I couldn't find it. That's so I was like, I bet there were about ten people who managed to vote for that <laughs> on, on, on the night. I, hope, I presume and hope that Channel 4 will explain what the app is, and I wonder how much money they will make out of selling that app. So that's what the interesting thing It says thing. it's free. Well, yeah. It's advertising, though, isn't it? Advertising, yeah. Mm. I wonder. In, in fairness as well, I mean, there are obvious um, crossovers with the X Factor, with the voice and so on, doing an entertainment music format. But this is much more with an emphasis on entertainment, is it? They've been talking about a stage that moves so that you can see how popular the acts are. Sounds to me almost like a comedy show. Alan Carr's in charge. It's going to be a bit like the fun bit of the X Factor, which is poking yes. fun at all the people with mental illnesses. Well, I, can't, well, I don't know about that, but I, ca- I can't really watch the X Factor anymore or, or Britain's Got Talent. But when I saw this, I thought it was fun. I also noted that the company behind it really is remarkable who've done the million pound drop. And they've, okay. I'm very much in favour of live voting and live programming the uh, there's a new dating show starting i think it's uh, tomorrow night on channel five um yeah. stand by your man which i've been watching and again that is all pre-recorded mm. and it would be much more fun and probably much more expensive mm. of course, to to make these shows live and, and let people participate uh, well more tv now and uh, the bbc3 show russell howard's good news uh, is going to move to bbc2 which which is good news for him uh, according to the radio times the decision was made before march when bbc3 was announced as moving online Hmm. Uh, Maggie, it's had eight series on BBC Three, but BBC Two already has Mock the Week. Does it need both of these sort of quite blokey, let's look back at the news shows? Well, I think it's going to have to take it, isn't it? Because, I mean, if you don't have a televised uh, youth BBC Three, then some of the stars have to be fitted in somewhere, or their contracts, presumably, or whatever it is that they're doing. And, and I mean, he's, he's a good star. So, I don't know. I mean, that that's just kind of how it is at the moment at the BBC. Lots of strange decisions being made. Well, Boyd, I kind of heard the gossip that actually Russell Howard wouldn't do another series on BBC Three if it went online. He'd only do it on BBC Two. Yeah, well, I think it's absolutely right that um, a lot of talent won't want to be on BBC Three once it just goes online. That decision, by the way, I still I believe yet to be ratified by the by the governors, and I think they might overturn it. It's such a preposterous thing to do. Basically, what happened was the BBC. This is more about BBC Three than Russell Howard. Russell Howard's decision makes sense because it's one of their biggest shows. It's, he's very popular. It's a huge, you know, a lot of people don't like him, but he's not just among men. By the way, he's very popular among women. He's one of the few stand-up who I would say equally popular among men and women. Anyway, the BBC Three decision, they had to cut the budget, they had to do something. So the decision to take it off TV was so ridiculous. This, a, a true metropolitan media league decision. The bosses of the BBC thinking, oh, young kids, they only watch stuff online. They think they don't. They all, they're all watching TV like the rest of us. And by the way, lots of genuinely poor people still can't watch stuff online. And all of that decision was taken without thinking about any of that. And there was a brilliant joke made on the back chat with Jack, Jack White, which is another big BBC Three show. I don't know if you saw that, a special edition for the World Cup, which is probably still being repeated, still on iPlayer, where they all say they're not gonna, they wouldn't want to do it when BBC Three goes online, even on that BBC Three show. You know, it, I, I think that decision is going to have loads of ramifications. And actually, it highlights a problem, doesn't it? Which is, if they're not going to want to get rid of their really big hits like this, then actually the justification that BBC Three and the money that they do have left for those kinds of shows is all about new talent and giving no. opportunities. It won't be, clearly, because they'll be saving the big shows and probably pumping them with more money to make them ready for BBC Two. Completely. And I've had BBC PRs, uh, I was saying before about the BBC PR industry, saying to me, no, 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 you don't understand. The future of TV is online. That's why we're doing all these iPlay. Like, Hold on a minute. Are you, are you, in that case, you're going to put BBC One and BBC Two, take them off 
transmission, not have them on our TVs and make them non-linear like Netflix and, in theory, BBC Three. Of course they won't. They're completely confused and bewildered and trying to maintain some level of modernity, and the whole thing's a disaster. And the argument goes, Maggie, that actually the more stuff you do put online, you accelerate the path to people arguing for subscription for the BBC instead of a licence fee at all. Well, you certainly do. What what I actually think as well is that it's one of those strange decisions because the money is being reallocated to drama, by and large, which is super-serving people who already love drama. So it's even more uh, just strange. I'm very bewildered by the whole thing. Well, staying on money and the BBC, some more detail on those job cuts at BBC Radio have emerged. Uh, They're going to group the stations Radio 1, 1 Extra, Radio 2, 6 Music and the Asian Network all under the heading pop music, uh, whilst Radio 4, 4 Extra, Radio 3 and BBC Proms come under the categories classical music and speech output. Uh, Maggie, what does this mean, really? Well, I've interrogated quite a few people on this. As it was breaking last week, um, I ran into a really senior Radio 4 executive who was seething and heartbroken about the whole thing. And so there clearly is a great deal of anxiety within Radio 4 that it's somehow losing key personnel. Other people believe that actually, oh, no, 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 the controllers remain the same. They do have to cut the budgets, but this is designed to, as it were, squeeze out middle managers, people who just waft in and out of studios and don't really have proper jobs. I don't know where the truth lies. I suspect that um, it is, as we all know, radio has been squeezed and is not an extravagant part of the BBC's output. I would tend to worry that this quite modestly funded, I'm not not talking about the proms now, but in general speech radio side, could well be um, facing more threats and more cuts than we, we think at the moment. Right, Radio 1's um, uh, budget cuts seems to have, seems to have led to the, the, the axing of the review show with Edith Bone, which I think is one of the best shows on Radio 1, so frankly I'm furious. But are you on that one as well? I've been on it. Right, I, haven't yeah, been on, okay. I haven't been on it for years. <laughs> so I, that's an objective comment. Yeah. Wouldn't rule them out as a future employer, though. Uh, And finally, B Sky B are launching Sky Sports 5, hooray, Uh, dedicated to, can you tell, I'm not a fan, dedicated to European football, uh, with more than 600 live matches a month, according to Roy Greenslade, writing in The Guardian. Now, Boyd, you are a football fan. Is this a tempting proposition? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, for a football fan, it's good to have all of your European options on one channel, because um, the, the European matches that Sky had the rights to would be kind of spread around very, and you wouldn't quite know where to go. I mean, I think generally Sky's sports channel, the selection of what goes where is all a bit confusing. I don't quite get why they put certain channels, you know, certain Premier League games are on Sky Sports 1, another one might be on Sky Sports 2, all of that. If they're simplifying that and what creating this whole new channel, that's a good thing if you're a Royal fan. I think, I don't know if it is because they, f- they feel a threat from BT Sport. I mean, they should feel a threat from BT Sport because BT Sport's got the, the Champions League next year, which is a big, big deal. Um, so it makes sense for them to do something about it. I don't feel this is going to have any impact on BT Sport because people will watch those matches if they want to watch those matches. But this week, too, uh, B-Sky-B introduced this new front page on, on the screen, which is really very interesting. So you've got a change in the uh, electronic programme guide. So when you, when you turn on, you have the whole menu, really, of what you can do, not just basically a, a channel guide. Or, which does make sense. Which because does that make is sense, too. Yeah, I, found it, I found that uh, quite a major uh, yeah, change. And, yeah. and it just sort of arrived. It's good, though, isn't it, Maggie, for Sky Sports to be looking over their shoulder at someone? 
Oh, absolutely. I'm all in favour of uh, competition. And I also think that I'm also in, comp- uh, in favour of the new ITV Encore drama channel, which launched this uh, week as well, which, again, is positioned very neatly um, on the EPG. So you have a sort of cluster of ITV uh, channels. And I- I've, in fact, been uh, watching Broadchurch again on it. But you know who done it. It doesn't matter. I actually miss part it totally of, matters. I miss, I miss part of the first episode, actually. So I mean, no, it's such I'm, a good show that even though you do know who done it, you still want to watch it again? I don't know. I, when, when at the BAFTAs, in Olivia Coleman's nomination clip, they showed her reacting to who done it. I was like, what are you doing? Oh, yeah, what happened to living in a no-spoiler generation? Yeah. Yeah. Honestly. Uh, right, time for uh, the media quiz to wrap up this week. Uh, it's Boyd versus Maggie. Very exciting moment. Question number one. <laughs> Celebrity MasterChef started again this week, but who has signed up as a judge on MasterChef The Professionals? I don't, do, I don't do cooking. I don't do cooking. Uh, Marcus Waring. Very good. One point to Boyd Hilton. Question number two. Which popular documentary festival, there are so many, had its most popular opening night ever last Friday? Well, I know it was Sheffield, because I wasn't there and I would have liked to have been there, but I'm not exactly sure what it was showing, to be honest. Uh, they were showing Florian Habick's documentary Pulp, a film about life, death and supermarkets, which is <laughs> about pulp, actually. Um, but yes, Sheffield Dockfest, very good. One point to Maggie, one point to Boyd. This is therefore a crucial question, the decider. Question number three. Which crowdfunding site, <laughs> again, so many to choose from, now has its own section in The Guardian? Kickstarter. Correct. Boy there is Hilton only one. There what is, is the other crowdfunding site? Uh, there are others. Plenty of others. Are there? But, uh, are, are you serious? Them. Yeah, Pledge I'm Music, never for example. We, we looked at them all. Oh, okay. You looked at them all. Indiegogo. Oh, fascinating. See, I'm so out of touch. I only know Kickstarter. The uh, Guardian website is going to highlight journalism projects in need of cash. Um, we've got an idea for a podcast they might like to uh, feature uh, in the future. I'm sure the Guardian would have no issues with that. Uh, well, that's it for this week. My thanks to Maggie Brown and to Boyd Hilton. Thank you very much. Thank you to you for listening. You can subscribe and help support the show by going to themediapodcast.com. We were number 26 in iTunes earlier in the week, so let's keep that momentum going. I've been Ollie Mann. The producer is Matt Hill, the Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next week, bye-bye. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.